This is the Collective Nightmares podcast. We are sociologists who talk horror films. My name is Marshall Smith. I spend an unusual amount of time thinking about particularly horror films, what they have to say, why they got made, how they got made, and what they tell us about ourselves and what is going on in our society. And I'm Laura Patterson. Marshall and I both have our PhDs in sociology from the University of Colorado at Boulder. And... Yeah, horror films are great for for two reasons, um, both of which I think get evidenced in this podcast. One is that they provide a really interesting reflection of what is going to be appealing to society at any given time and what types of fears people must carry. Um, And so that I think can be absolutely fascinating. And two, they provide the potential to really question good and evil and how society is set up and how society should be set up. And that, I will say, didn't happen in this film, but at least got discussed. The potential for that got discussed in this podcast and how how this film just fell so utterly flat on that dimension. But both of those things are are great. I mean, they make these films just endless opportunities for for digging into fascinating conversations. For sure. And this is the fourth in a in an unplanned, unanticipated miniseries on particularly possession films. We started with The Conjuring and found new material and new ideas or ways to consider films, these films so compelling that we then jumped to The Possession, 2012 film, came back to James Wan for Insidious, which actually came first before The Conjuring. And this is our discussion of Insidious Chapter 2 from 2013 directed by James Wan and co-written, created by Lee Winnell and James Wan of Saw fame, amongst other things. The synopsis for Insidious Chapter 2, the Lamberts believe they have defeated the spirits that have haunted their family. They soon discover that may not be the case. Whatever. Uh... (laughs) It won't be the case for a very long time because we've got at least five of these films, if not more coming. So Uh, hang on Lambert's (laughs) be a long haul. These are intensely popular films and we just, I don't, yeah, we just sort of walked into this and we're, we're really enjoying the discussion. You don't necessarily have to have listened to the earlier episodes, but having seen some of these films and and maybe listening to at least one or two of the earlier episodes, particularly that our first one on The Conjuring, we think would be helpful. We spoil the film. We dive right into a full detailed discussion. So you will want to, we dive into a detailed discussion of the film. And so if you want to be able to still get the full impact of the the scares and the experience of the film we encourage you to watch it before you join us and listen we appreciate you tuning in joining us our entire catalog of episodes is available for free on our website collectivenightmares.com 
we are on iTunes. I don't think our full catalog is there. I don't know exactly why. Spotify, it should be. And you can subscribe or like us or review us. That's all super helpful for us. We do this for free. And even you just tell a friend, particularly if you find a particular episode interesting, suggest us to someone, we'd appreciate it. Did we spoil anything besides? Spoil Insidious. This film spoils Insidious 1 within like the first five minutes anyway. So you to catch you up as a viewer. I don't think we really spoil anything else. No, I don't think so. Minor spoilers for The Conjuring, but not nothing in such a way that would really ruin the film for you, I don't think. I so don't have anything for this episode. (laughs) (laughs) I think you should just redo the one you did for Insidious because it's just a bland remake. And so (laughs) there's no need to be innovative here, Marshall. (laughs) Uh, Sequel, not remake. (sighs) Similar to the Lamberts in our discussion of Insidious, we felt like we defeated the film and its meanings. However, this one, we found that the meaning and the ideology of the film could not be addressed so easily. It was painful, painful and tortured (laughs) much, much like this film is. (laughs) All right. You want to start? (laughs) Yes. Yes, indeed. Let's start. <laughs> I have a question because we were talking budget last time. What did this one, what was its budget and what did it make? Did it do better than the first one? Did it do worse? I mean, it, it ended up in a franchise of what, five? Uh, I think five is coming coming next year. Insidious, Insidious 2, Insidious 3, Insidious The Last Key, which is before... And Insidious 5 is coming soon, soon to come. So yes, I guess it will be five. It will be five. All right. IMDb budget, five million. U.S. gross, 83. Worldwide, 161. <laughs> so it did great. Oh, yeah. And wh- how did that compare to the first one? So I'm working on that. All right. If you're looking at the first, then I'm going to look at the third because I want to know that too. First one is 1.5 million budget. So a third. Grossed 54 in the US and 100 worldwide. So bigger budget, better, better box office. I don't know. You know, I don't know percentage wise if that's better. Probably not. Because you need to be three times as much. Okay. So for three then... The budget was 10 million and then USA got 52 million worldwide, 112 million. Okay. So they're, they're getting the same money out of it, but they're putting more money into it. What, why do you ask about the budget? I don't think you've ever asked a budget question before. Because this felt like such a, just McDonaldized piece of junk (laughs) and formula mindless. (laughs) And I wondered if, that works, which it apparently does and did, or if it maybe fell, fell flat, but it didn't. 
And I, I wanted to know also not only its budget, but the next one, because it's possible too that a lot of people went and saw the second one and then maybe changed their mind and didn't decide to go see the third, but that's apparently not the case. So yes, it worked. <laughs> I found it to be <laughs> just... Not, not as good as what I, what I hear you saying. <laughs> Utterly unsatisfying. I mean, I didn't love the first one either, but yeah. All right, well, I, I what... What did you think? Yeah. I'm curious to talk to you about it because I thought that you led into this one saying that there were some interesting gender issues and some like problematic stuff that we should talk about. And I will say as much as I found it to be just a commercialized McDonaldized pile of junk, I didn't feel like the ideology was maybe quite as bad again. Like I feel like we're inching in better directions here. Um, so I'm curious to really? talk to you about <laughs> Maybe, I, maybe I'll open my eyes to it. I thought using the device of an abusive mother who is forcing you to enact a gender that you don't want to being cause of you becoming a massive serial killer was not a not a great ideology <laughs> true <laughs> but again the bar was really low for these so i agree with that i agree with that I also got a little bit confused, though, honestly, just on that one point as to whether that was supposed to be what caused it or not. It seemed like it got all confusing. I was super confused in this film in a lot of ways. But is it that he was through the story of the film? Was it that he was treated this way as a child and therefore he became what he became? Or was he possessed? Who's he? Parker. Oh, yeah. No, I don't think Parker was possessed, was he? Well, yeah, because then the whatever, when the person, what was his name? The one with the glasses? Josh? Specs? No. Um, what'd you just say? Specs? As in oh, no, 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 no. Um, the guy, the, the ghost hunter person, whatever uh, oh. guy. What was his name? I don't know. Let's look. <laughs> Carl? Carl? Carl. 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 Sounds right. Yeah, it must be. Carl. All right. What about Carl? Okay. When Carl was talking to possessed Josh, with the and the possessed Josh says something about like, why don't you ask the dice? The dice are really smart, you know, whatever. And he realizes that he's talking to a demon. He says to Josh something, blah, 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 Josh, or should I say Parker or something like that. And... So the demon was Parker, but not really. It was the witch person who was also Parker's mom or something. Wait, really? I mean, the first thing I was going to do, Laura, was actually try and sort through whatever happened here. Um, <laughs> All right, that sounds, that sounds fair. <laughs> I, I am sure that my introduction to the film was that I said something about there being some kind of notably problematic gender dynamics happening in the film. And I think having, uh, <laughs> I think having, you know, gender identity as a fundamental reason for being a problematic character. And then the, and then the killer being, being a crossdresser, being transvestite also in addition to everything else, I'm sure is what raised a big warning sign to me of like, okay, this probably isn't, this probably isn't really doing anything very good here. 
So that's what I mean. Again, this was, I'm sure I saw this probably when it came out. So seven years ago. So that's, that's, I guess, as much as I remembered. And, you know, I didn't have anybody to talk through it all with. So I'm sure I thought through whatever I thought through, but that doesn't stick as well as if you sort it, sort it out. So, okay. (laughs) Yeah. What happened? That's a good place to start. (laughs) All right. So, um, Lynn Shea, what's her name? Elise. So Elise is killed by witch, ghost witch, who has taken over Josh's body at the end of the first film. So Josh is now kind of fighting with that demon, but mostly the demon has won and is now just has possessed Josh. (laughs) So the rest of the family then becomes suspicious. The mom... Right, Josh's mom, Josh's wife. Renee. Yes. Yeah. And the Elise's two sidekick right. younger guys, whatever their Specs, names are. Specs and Tucker. And Carl, right? Some combination of all those other characters gets suspicious that Josh is not actually Josh. Right. And in having a seance to talk to Elise or something, right? right. Somehow they, get, oh, they yeah. get put on the path of this hospital where Josh's mom used to work and the Parker guy who was, I guess, a serial killer who she ran into in the hospital. Yeah, right. Okay, so she takes she takes young Josh to the hospital at some point and Josh is traveler person who doesn't yet know that and is standing there as this killer is dying or whatever and apparently attaches to him then or notices him then or identifies him or whatever it is. And then the stuff happens when he's a kid. But, and then they do whatever the kids say on, so they tell him to forget and he forgets. Fast forward 30 years later and the first movie happens and then the second movie, or you're right. And then they go in and they're like, right, we do our seance. We need Elise's help. So we're going to do the seance. And, and instead of actually contacting Elise, who they, they think they've contacted Elise, instead they've contacted Parker. And Parker sends them to his, his killing fields, his killing room, or something, somewhere he stores his victims or somehow, which I think was the idea was that was that was a place where he would be in control so he could then kill them or get them away from Josh. So he could finish, finish taking over Josh's body. And then we find out that the black witch is really Parker cross-dressing as a dead bride. Okay. Wait, is that the (laughs) witch though? Because then in the later scenes when Parker is a child that appears to be his mom, Right. I thought I don't know I don't really know but I guess what I thought was that he had taken the form of his mom because of the abuse or some shit I conflated the two I don't and that's not I have no investment in that being correct (laughs) but you asking me that made me realize that 
I just assumed I I assumed that it was Parker all the way through. He he was cross dressed as the witch, the black wedding gown. We see him take off the veil, and it's him. And we see him painting his face, or I don't know, whatever. Some point in there. But you're right. She does look like that. But we don't ever. No, no. But doesn't she get killed or something in the weird scenes at the end where suddenly it's a flashback and I don't really understand, but like the present day ghost hunting team or somehow in the past, don't they kill Parker's mom? And that somehow brings Josh back to life or whatever. Like, like that was the demon. I thought that they were only killing her symbolically. They were killing her within Parker's childhood memories of her. And that was somehow equivalent to him forgetting the abuse or resolving the abuse or something. And that was what I thought it was a symbolic, not a, so I thought it was like, okay, his mom. So what I, I guess what I took was his mom, we see the abuse part where she slaps the hell out of him and tells him you have to call yourself Marilyn. And my understanding was that Parker holding on to and repressing those experiences and memories or however you want to say that is what drove the evil of Parker. And by removing that within his psyche or within the ghost psyche, I don't know, whatever you, however that plays out it, it withdrew, but so that could be a, that's a very good question is maybe that was the actual demon who was actually, who is driving Parker. This is like a super important question to me. And I don't think it was a super important question to the film actually, but I think it's really important whether the evil was this demon evil spirit thing, this evil just exists and that's that. And sometimes it tries to get into people or whether Parker was supposedly abused as a child and that somehow drove him to do what he was doing later on conflating those two, which I think the film absolutely did. I don't even know if it knows the answer, but that seems really troubling. And in our trying to sort through this. See, and I thought there was also, well, I wanted to, I wanted to discuss with you. I understand we haven't resolved that issue and I'm throwing in another thing, but it occurred to me at some point that particularly as uh, Josh is raging around the house with, Renee and the kids and beating them up and they're fleeing was this is very much the iconography and the uh, popular representation of domestic violence. And I had this inkling that this could be really problematic because we're, because we're, I don't know exactly. uh, There's something to sort out. So I'm going to say it. And if it needs to be resolved, or reworked, but it seemed like what we're doing here is we're presenting this, this uh, visual iconography of domestic violence, but what we're doing is we're attributing it not to uh, a man, a real individual person acting as they do, but we're attributing it to this possession demon, whatever. And there's just something about that, that I didn't like because it was such a iconic, this is abuse, or this is a, at least within movies, this is how domestic violence happens. And then there was, 
with him with so with Josh doing that, there is something in that about there's a cycle of abuse happening. I understand we need to figure that out. And this is where that's where the tangent or where the link should be of his abuse, particularly with regard to his gender uh, expression as a child is what started that cycle of abuse. And to me, that would be even doubly problematic because then we're attributing the responsibility for him becoming this abuser to his mother. So then it's, so then him as a, as a man who is enacting all this violence is essentially absolved of all actual responsibility for his behavior. And I understand it's possession and it's yada, yada, but uh, that's just something about that. Isn't, uh, you know, with all the other sexism and shit that going on in the film, if there was other factors that maybe con- contradicted that stuff, it, it wouldn't have stirred something up, but, but with everything else, cause this was, too, I do. Uh, and and I, I know you want to jump in. I want to hear what you have to say here, but this was also, we, I just want to acknowledge quickly. This was also, we're back to another film, another James Wan film, this, the fourth in our series where women are basically useless. They have kind of figure things out at the edges, but they don't ever, they're not ever actually credited with action that is useful or helpful. They work around the edges and they kind of nudge and suggest and they figure out a lot of shit, but they never are able to act agentically based on that. The kids are also disregarded. It's men even more so because in this one, Elise doesn't even get to be the primary conduit. It's now Carl. So a man has, has replaced the one effective woman. However, I mean, she was still relegated to a conduit, but so within all of this other uh, sexist shit that where did you, did you see any, get any of that? Or did you? I, yes, I agree with you. I had the same emotional reaction watching it. And the question that I then raised to myself was when we critiqued Insidious, well, I guess this has come up throughout several of these films, but we talked about this idea that, you know, the evil is coming from outside the home and, you know, it's something trying to get into your domicile, right? Or I suppose as these films progressed, or at least the ones that we've, we've watched have progressed, maybe there was this kind of morphing and insidious to like, oh, the evil's already inside the house, maybe. But anyway, we critique this idea that I think you explicitly said, you know, domestic violence, the home is one of the least safe places for women. And instead, we're raising that up, like, you know, we're elevating the nuclear family and the home as the safe space. And these threats are coming in from the outside. And so this, I both had exactly the same reaction you had in this film to to what you're laying out here, and then wondered that to myself and thought, huh, well, in a way, though, this is somewhat challenging what we were arguing before, right? It's now we've got the man in the household who's actually the threat and he can't be trusted. And we're not sure how to navigate that and how to tiptoe around him. So yes, I agree. And I also, I have that, I don't know, critique, I guess I would lay out to our argument that if we're going to complain before that the, Mm. the threat is coming from outside the home, then I don't know if there's a way this could have been done better to not have that same emotional reaction. Cause like I said, I, I agree with you. I felt it too. But how could the threat have been situated internally or situated in him in a way that maybe remedies a little bit of what we critiqued earlier? Fantastic point. 
Which brings us full circle to the crucial question that you started with, which is, is it mom serving as the witch who's driving this? Or is it Parker who was created to be a, as a monster as a result of abuse from his mom? And Parker, because I, I really thought that, I agree with you, it's totally confusing. And the fact that we're both confused, one, that makes me feel better because I was, I mean, I watched half last night, I watched half today, and I, but I was also just like, it was so bizarre. God, tangents already today. It was so bizarre because there were moments in this movie where they, I thought, really expected and trusted the audience to have understanding and remember stuff, remember stuff from the first movie, put pieces together and, you know, they're, they're intermingling timelines and spirit world and real world and dream world. And a lot of that is being kept safe or being kept organized. And they're really, I mean, I was like, I mean, of all the films, we go back to our quiet place. It's like the opposite of the quiet place. They were trusting the audience to like figure out shit that no Hollywood film ever trusts the audience to actually keep in track of it and be on top of. And then there was this other stuff where it was like, I have no idea <laughs> what's happening here. I, I don't know who is what. It, it was just so bizarre to, to be at both ends of that spectrum in the same film. Cause yeah, we were like, <laughs> I mean, we're really already- interesting we're, point because you're right. We're like five layers deep. <laughs> we're like in Parker's psyche with his mom, Parker, but it's not Parker's psyche, it's Parker's spirit psyche, which might be his mom as a demon, which is in Josh's traveling the further world, which is happening both as Josh the child and as, I mean, it's fucking worse than, uh, than the Christopher Nolan movie, <laughs> Inception, right? <laughs> but what I was going to say is, what was I going to say? I was going to say something about what we need to know is, is it, okay, is it Parker who is the, the monster or, and was created that his, 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 he was, his origin story is the abuse from his mother, particularly with regard to his gender, or is it his mother who has taken over his identity or something or is it both? Were they both happening at the same time? I don't know. I think what I, th I think what I thought, very articulate. What I thought is, from that hospital flashback scene was, Parker, Parker who's dying in the bed, identifies Josh as a potential way to, whatever he is. He's the light in the darkness that he can use to get back through the world or into the life or whatever it is. And when he dies, mom sees him ride down the elevator. And so Parker's spirit ghost version has now traveled into the, the world and has basically spent the rest of its time trying to work its way into, into Josh. And in at some point, or for whatever reason, his gender identity issues as a result of her abuse meant that him as the ghost took to wearing the black wedding gown and veil and Wait, horror so, ensues. 
So let me throw out another, I think, important question here. Because another way that we've critiqued these films is on the basis of the evil being totally supernaturally generated. And I know I've at least said that I usually don't like films where the where the villain is supernatural because there's so much evil within humanity. And to me, those are more interesting questions and more interesting things to talk about. And so is this better? We don't know what happened, but, but there's at least a possibility here that Parker was created, whatever. And, and let's just set aside the problematic stuff around his creation, but he was created through human action. And mm. then his spirit somehow became evil through that or something. And then his spirit is like bopping around doing demon things, which would put the ultimate genesis of this evil in human hands, which is a very different ideologically. That's a very different setup than what we led, you know, the films we led with in this series where the evil is very much outside of humanity. And I don't know, I don't know which one this is because I couldn't figure it out. Well, the conjuring, it, the conjuring started with human origin too, right? Cause it was whoever got burned at the stake. Weren't they witches though? Oh, yeah. Well, but were they like Salem witches or were they witches? I think they were supposed to be real witches because because oh. of the whole beginning or am I? No, that was the conjuring, right? The whole beginning of the film, like, oh, these are evil. They've never taken human form or they've never walked. Oh, the earth yeah. Yeah. OK. So there are some Absolutely. fully supernatural. You're right. Demons. You're right which I thought was the case in this one too, except that whole, if that is the case, that whole origin story of Parker was irrelevant. Like it made no sense because if he's going to be bad and possessed and then his spirit is going to go on to possess other people or whatever, it shouldn't, there shouldn't be any human influence because it doesn't matter because these are things that happen outside of humanity anyway. So, but I guess all I'm posing is it potentially better that there was at least a question mark here, some sort of human influence on the evil just to clarify for myself and whomever better in this case would be better ideologically in that there's some sort of human responsibility for the evil rather than conjuring up a uh, mystical spiritual evil that doesn't actually have, doesn't exist or have any real presence. We talked in our last podcast about the possibility for the evil in these films to be really, like, uh, I want to say deflecting. That's not the word I mean. But, right, shifting shifting focus. Distraction. <laughs> yes, distraction, right? Isn't that yeah. what we yeah. use? Yeah. I think so. So the, the evil that's being presented in these films takes away from the real tangible evils of humanity. And in the comical way that you pointed out in the last podcast, that, like, <laughs> this kid's medical bills would be so terrible. But nobody's going to pay attention to their socioeconomic standing or what's going on with one one worker in this household that they're somehow able to live in this giant mansion, whatever we're focusing on the evil that is the spirit world. And so it's, we talked about it being false consciousness to some extent. We're going to look at, look at evil in places where evil doesn't really exist because we as a culture, maybe want to uh, want to, it's better for people in power in our culture. If this culture looks for evil in places that do not have human origins, because then there's no way that society could be adjusted to try to decrease the evil or or fix it. And so in this case, if they were saying that Parker was somehow caused by human action, which I mean, they were, I guess they had to be because why else? Otherwise this narrative was just there for absolutely no reason. At least that's shifting some of the blame back onto human action. I mean, so again, I'm not saying it's great. I'm just saying it's like a slight shift in the, a better direction, maybe. 
And I'm slightly playing devil's advocate in doing this because I, I found everything that you found problematic also <laughs> problematic. But these questions, I think, are interesting too. Oh, absolutely! Oh, yeah, no, it's it's great. It, you, absolutely, the devil the the devil's advocacy is strongly encouraged. I the other piece that I'm inclined to attribute this to Parker is don't they have the dialogue or the something about or doesn't that introduce the our scene of abuse where Parker notices Josh at the hospital because he was deprived his childhood. And so that makes him that much more attractive to Parker to, to he's not just a traveler. He was like a kid who sort of the age at which his abuse started is where Parker was. So he identified Parker identified Josh as, Oh, I could take that. That's why Parker demon Parker spirit Parker, whatever has targeted Josh and then targeted Josh's kid at that age. So isn't that for me, that's another, some sort of indication that, that mom was just a, a disguise or a manifestation or something of his, but it, which for me is then, if, if we take that as as a scenario or as given, which is a big if, but whatever, then we have, then we have, the, you're right. We have an improvement in the sense that we have evil and abuse grounded in the origins of people mistreating other people, which is better, quote unquote, for us because as sociologists, this is where, and empiricists, this is where evil actually resides and comes from is, is people. And so it's a more, I want to say practical, but, and, and that is a, is the right word, but it's a very specific sense of the word. A, uh, it's a more applied version of evil. And I'm going to leave that at that. However, at the same time, what that means- well, can, I, can I jump in yeah, there yeah, for please, one second please. before you move on? I just, yeah. I, I want to say that more explicitly because I think it's really important. I mean, I, I really do think that this film has a, lays out a shift in the origin story of the evil and the demon, right? And situates it outside of supernatural hands and into human hands. And that really is a big difference. And if we compare that to the previous films that we've watched, Conjuring and then the first Insidious, well, certainly The Conjuring, right? In The Conjuring- Evil exists completely, you know, the origin of evil was completely outside of human hands. And the solution to evil was religion, right? Right. And so, and then in Insidious, evil still existed completely outside of human hands. Was the solution religion? It was spirituality or, or mysticism. I don't think it was. It wasn't. It wasn't, right? It wasn't like organized religion, like exorcist. And there was no religion. mention of like, you should go to church and that would have solved the problem. <laughs> like we saw, because we saw that directly right. in Conjuring. Baptize right? your kids and, you know, yes, right. It wasn't, it wasn't that, no. So that was one step away from that. And now in this film, it, we see, we still have no mention of religion. And now we've got this shift away from the origin of the evil being completely supernatural to situated at least somewhat, because there's a question mark there. I don't think we're going to figure out because I don't think the film knows the answer, but at least somewhat in human hands. And so that, again, just might be a bit of a shift. If we look at these films as, you know, mirroring societal fears back to ourselves, I could see that being an argument that we've got a progression here away from 
away from the problematic ideology that we laid out at the beginning. Not to say this isn't problematic in a bunch of other ways, but I think that's an, an important point to lay down. Absolutely. And I was clearly struggling to articulate that. So I, I appreciate you stepping in to do that. And sorry, you were about to go into a, another piece. I, I was. I was going to go into my issue with, well, I guess what I want to talk through is the the nature of the abuse, which was, well, that, so what we see is mom, do we get why she wants Parker to be Marilyn? She said something about that's the name your dad gave you. And so I took that to either be that she was mad at the dad for some reason, like dad left her dad, who knows what, or maybe not. Maybe she just wanted a daughter and she killed dad too, or, you know, who knows? So, okay. Right. So, okay. Let me see if I can put this together. So the abuse is both the physical violence and the, the component where you as a kid are not allowed to, be who you are and who you want to be, particularly with regard to gender. And that those two and the emotional, sure, components of that, but those are the two primary, those are the two ways we really see the abuse enacted or the motivations for it. And then that sort of a, that abuse then leads to Parker being a serial killer, but also continuing to have some sort of gender identity or gender expression issues. And I think it's really problematic or my sense is that it's really problematic because if they had had that as the kid, I don't know why they would have had the gender piece, but they could have had that. And then later, if Parker is this violent killer, what that tells me is that the important part of the abuse is really the physical abuse and, but by continuing that thread of the gender identity uh, issues or expressions, there's just something in that to me that reeks of like, there's something in that about like, you know, if you, maybe that's my sense of what I actually ask as a question is, is that telling us that if you let your, or if you have or encourage your kid to be, some gender other than what you, how you name them, that is problematic enough to lead to them having serious personality issues later in life. I want to, I'm going to throw out my take on this first, but then I want to play devil's advocate again. Um, But my, my take honestly is that yes, it's problematic. I think it's problematic in the same way that I'm sorry, Zach Parker, because I super respect you, but quench it was quench, right? Mm where I made this whole argument that using AIDS as like the weapon was trouble because it was othering. It it was like making a circus show out of something that is actually a problem that people have to deal with. And that I thought it was done for shock value and just the use of someone's lived circumstances as shock value can only be done when those someone's don't have a very loud voice because it's inherently oppressive to take somebody's experience and and hold it up as a punchline. And I felt that way about the gender stuff in this. I felt like it was, it was done because it would be like, Ooh, look, he was dressed up as a girl. Oh my God. Like it was just, it was othering. I thought it it made that feel it made, it made a child who would be in that sort of circumstance, just feel like a, like a circus show. And that was problematic to me. But I wonder 
And here's where I would like to just shift to devil's advocate for a minute. If the storyline was, you know, a child is being forced to enact a gender that doesn't feel right to them, and that can have long-lasting negative implications and, you know, cause trauma later on in life. And maybe even later on in life, the child would still be trying to fit into the role that they were told as, as a young child they should have been, even though they didn't want to be. And that might even be a, a fairly empathetic message for a, a, arguing that you can't you can't force a child out of the gender they want to be in without causing trauma might actually be okay. I mean, I, I think in my personal opinion, that's overshadowed by the fact that I don't think anybody was trying to convey that message. I think they were trying to use it so that you would be shocked and you would, yeah, I think, I think it's just a clear example of othering. I appreciate that again. And how you, how you said that I was struggling with that. I was struggling to try and ask it as a question because I didn't have a certainty as to how I read it. I had an intuitive sense of it. And I think what you said about quench is the most important part of that, which is the gender piece was really unnecessary. It, it just didn't add anything. It didn't need to be there. The part that maybe comes to mind is maybe it served its purpose as a misdirect of we were looking for a witch and in the movie you saw a witch and that we coded as a woman and now we need to turn that into a man and that'll make it a bigger reveal or a less predictable. It makes it, it would make it less predictable, but I think you could have done that without having the childhood component of it where yeah, whatever, who knows the demon just did it. Cause it's a demon. You don't have to explain its gender identity. <laughs> I think you're exactly right. And I actually think I want to say probably verbatim what I said about Quench, which was that if this was a film about the lived experience of someone, you know, in this circumstance, and that was really being held up as a problem, then that's one thing. And that could even potentially be a, a valuable contribution. But if in the case of Quench, it was HIV. And in this case, it would be, you know, being pushed into gender expression that doesn't fit who you are if that's being used as a punchline and as a shock value and to give your film some flash or some memorability that it can't carry just on its own plot, then that's oppressive and problematic. And I think in this case, just as I argued in quench, I think that very much is how it was used here. And so it's not, it's not even necessarily, and this is probably true in quench too. It's if you follow the, you know, if this is the, the genesis of evil in this story, that's almost a, an okay message, Mm -hmm. but that's not enough because I at least don't believe that's not what this film was about. They weren't trying to make that argument. They weren't carefully trying to show you what the lived experience of somebody in that situation is like. They were holding them up as a circus show to get some shock value. And that's not okay. I wonder if there is so as often as we can on this, on this podcast, we try and present ideas as to how we would improve the film And we do that, well, for a lot of reasons, but in part to take a step toward offering a, uh, offering solutions and, and a positive constructive critique rather than what so much critique is, which is, is merely emphasizing the, the shortcomings. And so I wonder if there's a way that the film could have, 
the film could have attributed this origin of evil with abuse, particularly child abuse, which, like you said, can could really be a given the prevalence of child abuse in well, U.S. culture, but in the world, that's a source of evil that provides a lot of potential for commentary and discussion of cycles of abuse and the repercussions and the the impact. And so there'd be some way to, okay, this, this abuse has led to Parker being abusive to all these folks around him, whether that abuse led to, led to them dying, all these victims in the chapel or kind of whatever it was, but as some sort of symbolism of, of the, the waves and the impacts of how abuse within one family or between just two, a parent and a child can have ripple effects of negativity throughout a community or throughout a much larger group of people. And then somehow the, the love that we see between Renee and Josh and that they have for their kids, that could be very back to conjuring like, Oh, the nuclear family will solve everything, which isn't great. But I think that would at least be better of somehow the love or the positive relationship between the kids foster and I don't know, whatever the fuck, what, what, what the fuck's the other kid's name? <laughs> uh, Dalton foster and Dalton. <laughs> I just, I rolled my eyes there. Uh, whatever between foster and Dalton and Renee and Josh somehow could have protected or resolved that abuse and I don't know if that would have gotten totally cheesy, but I just, again, I don't know what you, if you have thoughts here, but I thought it, I, like you said, there are actually inklings of, or, or seeds of a possible uh, film that, that could have made an ideological argument of somehow there, there is needs to be a reconciliation uh, of abuse and, and while you you can no, you'll never undo the abuse if it happens in the first place, there are repercussions beyond what we see. Or I, I don't know. I, do you have? Yeah, you know, and I even think one could take it a step further and say, even if you left the the gender stuff in there as the method of abuse if that was done thoughtfully, which I, I can't even imagine, I would not want to take on this film because I think to do that thoughtfully in the context of this kind of film would probably be very, very difficult. But if you somehow did it thoughtfully, I mean, it could even be an interesting venue for making that argument, for making an argument that would be palatable to a widespread audience about the difficulty of a child trying to navigate being forced to be a gender that is not what they want to be. And, you know, like I said, make it palatable by having it be laid out in this sort of way where you've got the parent, you know, the mom wants a daughter or something instead. So it's not even like the child has to be transgender. The child is just <laughs> being, trying to be pushed in that direction by an abusive parent. There's even some potential there. Like it's like the, the bare bones of what they've outlined here wouldn't even necessarily not fly. Again, I'm not saying I'd want to try it because I think it'd be very difficult, but it's, there could be potential for that. I think it just didn't do it at all. 
It didn't. Although, like, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to go back to saying I will give it a little bit of credit for the fact that it it did situate the evil in human hands, mm-hmm. and that in itself is something. I, probably not even a credit to the film so much as just as we look at this as a reflection of society. I think that to me presents a little bit better reflection of the target audience. If that's going to draw people in, then cool. I guess that seems a little bit better. But the gender yeah. piece here, I think to the extent that that was going to draw people in, it draws people in through just xenophobic tendencies. I agree. And I think there could even be something really interesting where there could be some sort of opportunity to comment imposing a gender on a child that is different can be just as restrictive or as abusive as imposing a gender you start out assuming your kid's going to be a boy and forcing him to be a boy can be as problematic as starting out with a kid who you think is going to be a boy and forcing that kid to, to live as a girl. And there could be something there that could be, there could be a very progressive commentary there. Cause I I mean like here, or I, I, I don't know what I'm thinking of specifically, but I feel like there are narratives where, uh, it's kid is a born a boy, but the parents make him live as a girl. And that is what produces him as a sociopath. So you could do that, but have it be same gender. And that could be a real progressive argument about it's the same process that you're doing. The point is that you're imposing this restrictive gender notion on, on a kid or on a person who, who doesn't want to, who doesn't want to live that way. Who doesn't feel that. And I agree with you. I think that would be challenging, but I think the bigger issue or the overall, which I, I'm curious if this, I feel like you think this way, but I'd love a confirmation. Yes or no of it just didn't seem like they had thought much of this through. And that was even worse because if they weren't thinking it through, there were so many other pieces of the film where they defaulted to really traditional hegemonic, unacceptable gender notions of men are agentic and in charge and science and women are feely and whatever and blah, blah, blah that came from the first film as well. And so if they were, if they were just throwing these things in without thinking what their unthinking default underlying assumptions about these things revealed themselves to be were really antiquated and problematic. Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And I almost wonder if this is an appropriate time to go back to the first question that we raised and. (laughs) Which was, (laughs) what was the first question? (laughs) Yeah. The cat just jumped over the microphone and somehow in doing that, I completely forgot what we were talking about. Um, I hope. Oh no, I had it. I feel like I had the keys to the to, to circle around our entire conversation here. Okay, I don't know. It'll probably come back. It'll probably come back. Okay. okay, well, anyway, so we've got our pieces that we've laid out of right. Is the evil situated within the is the origin of the evil supernatural or is it human? And I think we're coming to the argument and I I would agree with this. Although when I showed up here, I wasn't so sure, but just through having this conversation with you, I think I would agree with it being at least to some extent 
having a human origin in this film. And that does to me seem a little bit less problematic. Oh, oh, that's what it was. It was a domestic violence part, right? Mm. It was, that's what I wanted oh, to tie it yeah. back to because oh, it's the good. same thing. So I think we're talking about the gender expression and how like the, the general layout of that piece is not necessarily problematic. It's the way that it was used that was problematic. And I think talking about the, the situation of the evil now within a person, we've already said that the origin of the evil is coming from human from a human place. And now we've got the situation of the evil within a person who is part of the narrative. I mean, the it's always been, these are possession films. So very often someone gets possessed, but now we've got someone who they themselves are being questioned, right? It reminded me of like the thing, that's what it's called, right? Similar kind of setup, right? So you've got someone who's in your group and you don't know. It's not just cut and dry, like, oh, they're possessed. They're a demon. That's that. It's not them. It's the demon. But now it's, is it him? Is it not? And there's something there too that feels like a nuance in the same kind of direction. Like it might be a a better shift in ideology, not that they pulled it off well, but I I feel like we're in similar territory here. Uh I mean, does it help that part of the nuclear family was the problem? I think it's, I think it's very much the same territory. Just as you said that this gender piece that seems really they threw in because I don't know, it seemed like a good idea at the time. The, The domestic violence piece was, it just the again that the visual language of that just felt used as a as a gimmick as a convenience which is it it's not it's not the same but it's similar to where we've seen sexual assault thrown in as a plot device it's a plot device or it's a it's a fear device without without it being justified without it really being necessary for the story because he could have chased them or threatened them or whatever without it necessarily have been so evocative of, of a, of a domestic violence scenario. I mean, they did that for, for all the problems with the conjuring, it really didn't, it just didn't use that. It didn't use that device in the same way or in that way at all. It didn't, it just didn't use the, the, that device. And there was still violence and battle and back and forth between the, the demon in the basement and the people trying to exercise it and fight it out and yada, yada, yada. But okay. So I'm sorry. So the thing, the, the unknown, but we did know, I guess we didn't, I guess, I guess we didn't know that Josh was possessed, but I feel like we did. Because they, I mean, they take the picture at the end of the first one and they call back to that early on in this. And it's not like there's a face kind of transparent layered over. It's like, he's the fucking witch. <laughs> like the picture is not, you know, there's no, there's no blender like halfway transparent or ghosting or whatever it's just like so i never i never thought of josh as josh which for me made a lot of the film problematic because just logistically because because i i felt like they weren't they weren't operating under the fact that we have massive reservations about whether or not josh is safe so like we're gonna send a couple kids to the babysitter but we're not gonna send all of them (laughs) and like 
and we're just going to send them to a babysitter. We're not going to like tell the babysitter, by the way, dad might be an abusive demon. <laughs> Don't just drop, drop the kids back off at eight o'clock, whenever the, your babysitting shift is over. <laughs> like you, you should take them to grandma or something. I, there was just that stuff. Just, I was like, cause they pick up from the first film right where it leaves off. So this is presumably like a day later, <laughs> two days later, three days later. And it's like, <laughs> by the way, somebody was just murdered. <laughs> and yeah, the cops, the cop calls and says, well, it doesn't match your husband's handprint, but he was the only person in the room. And sure, let's leave our kid who just survived this whole months long traumatic coma possession with that dude okay <laughs> anyway all right so a lot of that i okay. just go ahead but we know that at the beginning right we know josh is possessed from the beginning but renee doesn't and in the scenes at least at the beginning of the film where we're renee you know where we're watching her navigate this whole situation there is a fundamentally different emotional experience i'm going to argue in this film compared to the previous possession films we've seen because in the previous ones, the possession is clearer. And when you're situated as the family member who's not possessed, dealing with the family member who is, there's not this sort of tiptoeing, questioning, I don't know if I should listen to this person or not, distrust, I guess, going on with the possessed family member to the extent that there was in this film. And that piece, I think, is an interesting corollary to the argument that you've been making about the domestic abuse, because... I do think there are plenty of scenes in this film where we're situated in Renee's shoes. And even though we know she shouldn't trust him, she's trying to navigate that and she might be trusting him or might not. And so he is, from our perspective, he's the threat and she needs to just get away from him. And that feels different. That feels different to me than the previous sort of pro-nuclear family the husband's going to be the savior vibe that we've gotten in all of these films before. And again, I'm not saying there's not still trouble there. Cause I absolutely agree with you on a base level. I think there's a lot of parallel between this and what we were saying with the gender expression stuff, where the, the domestic abuse that's presented in this film is not being presented to make a thoughtful argument about domestic abuse. Mm. It's being presented because whatever, it's going to make a good scene and they didn't think about it that hard. And I think that's the problem. Yeah. But even so, I want to say there might be a tempering in ideology here by just allowing the, the demon to be, I guess that's it, questioning, in this case, questioning the patriarch of the nuclear family is the right thing for the mother to do. And we know that. And so we are on her side wanting her to figure out that he's trouble. And that, it, that in itself is, again, an improvement. But I, I mean, I don't want to say improvement like this was great because it wasn't. It just, in an accidental kind of way, I, part of me at least wants to argue that both the gender piece and this piece are accidentally make the film ever so slightly better while also being problematic at the same time. It's like raising in other problems, but the sort of underlying ideology the film's promoting, they might be shifting it slightly in the right direction. I agree. And I'm going to say again, I'm going to land back to that would be true if they, I'd be much more willing to acknowledge or reward that those even those minor shifts if they had done anything seemingly intentional with it 
So it's better in the sense that it it may be taking these baby steps towards a better position, but it's worse because they took those steps without, I think it was like luck or like, I don't know, I don't know what, or just sheer, I have no idea. <laughs> but I agree, I, but yeah. could it be like from the perspective that we often come at these films, could it also be, again, not that they were doing it intentionally, but just that whatever cultural waters they're swimming in while they're putting this film together you know, what's going to appeal to the audience, the ideology of what's going to appeal to the audience is a little bit less problematic than it was a couple films ago. Yeah. They don't get credit necessarily for that, but at the same time, if we're looking at the film as a reflection of society, it it might represent a slightly better shift. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. They're not arguing that the nuclear family is the be-all, end-all savior and you need religion to save yourself and, again, totally ignore any material or human induced problems because you know, the boogeyman's going to get you and that's where the evil is. Right. Except the, <laughs> uh, that is all well and good, except for the fact that chronologically the conjuring came out the same year as this sequel to insidious. Wait, what? I thought the conjuring was first. No insidious was first. Insidious was first. Was oh, 2000. Insidious was first. Insidious was 2010. This sequel came out 2013. The Conjuring, the first Conjuring, also came out 2013. So, one, James Wan had a good year in 2013 at the box office. <laughs> and two, whatever little, if we weigh the little positive possible steps forward that we see in the conjuring two versus the massive steps backwards that are replete through the conjuring there is there's no contest of how that scale is gonna weigh way out because the conjuring <laughs> is so so archaic and backward it, it's almost it's it's very bizarre that both both films came out this same year i was just gonna look so one is director of Insidious 2, is co-credited for story with Lee Wanell, and Lee Wanell is single credit for screenplay, actual screenplay, and then Conjuring. And then The Conjuring is James Wan directed, written by Chad and Carrie Hayes. So he had no, he was merely director. So that may give us some indication that the real backward archaic ideology of conjuring really might not have been Juan's doing the little steps forward here that we see in insidious two might be more because he was involved in, in the story and he's going to have, even though he wasn't credited, the fact that he and, and Lee Winnell have worked together since saw. So 10 years at this point, presumably they have a, a relationship of screenplay and director where they have discussion over how it's going to go. It's not, this is the screenplay shoot it as I wrote it. Yeah. That just totally like threw off my whole little theory. there. I liked what we were arguing last time about the conjuring being a potential like refinement on what was going to sell, you know, as coming in, coming out after insidious that maybe it was a, a step in the, more overt problematic ideology direction because I, I thought we made a pretty nice argument that maybe that was that was the formula 
But this would refute that. This would say that kind of out of the first insidious came both of these two entities that are rather different. Yeah. I have one other thing that's a minor thing. Did you have... I, yeah, I have something else that's not exactly on the topic that we've been covering. So you feel free to do your thing if you want. Sorry, I was going to look at, as long as we're really using these as m- more measures of society. So Insidious Chapter 2, Budget 5, Gross in the U.S., 83, which is what, 14, 16 times? Budget conjuring gross in the u.s is 137 so like 14 times so they're basically equally popular films at least in terms of percentage return on investment of course gross gross 140 almost double for the conjuring so by that measure which i think is probably more realistic to say because it was the same year so those ticks tick prices were the same conjuring was a more popular film which would speak to the conservatism of or the popularity of the conservatism of it. What I was going to say, which I was talking earlier about the film trusting the audience to sort out multiple layers of reality and perspectives and perspectives within perspectives and body shifts and yada, yada, yada. I, I think I actually laughed out loud at this point. The, <laughs> the counter to that, where I was talking about the, that it operated at, two extremes of trusting all of this versus not the, the not trusting the audience where I laughed out loud was when Carl looks at this tooth (laughs) as though he just can't figure out what it is. And he has to hold it and stare at it and hold it up to the light and look at it's a fucking tooth, bro. (laughs) (laughs) There's no mystical magical question here. It's not a Lego. We're, we're very clear. You've showed us it's a tooth. We see it's a tooth. We know it's a tooth. We saw Josh pull it out of his head. We now know that you saw it. You put your foot on it. Hey, yo, Juan, we got it. It's tooth. It's Josh's tooth. That indicates he's going downhill. You can go back to your inception layer of reality and personality. We've got the tooth figured out. All right, that's all. That's my little tooth rant. <laughs> I totally laughed out loud. Oh my I like that. And I'm glad you said it also because, <laughs> yes. Okay. So I guess I have a few more things I still want to talk about. Great. One is that one is the, okay. So we've still got humans are awesome as a theme in this film, right? Because the whole deal is that the demons really want to be you. In this case, maybe there was this little side thing going on about how Parker wanted to be a child again, and maybe even specifically a young boy again, because he didn't get to be. So that's, Again, it kind of cool because it shifts the evil away from the whole demon thing. But so when you get possessed, I guess, in this film, your human body starts to deteriorate. And so that's just interesting. I mean, that's interesting in the from the perspective of the demons, which I was still thinking of as demons. Although in this film, I wonder if they are human spirits a little bit more. And I don't know how that matters then. Mm-hmm. But it's just a weird drive. If you if you if you had these demon things along with like the mythology of the conjuring who've been around forever and just really want to be human. And then they get into human form and start slowly killing the humans. It's futile, I guess. What they want is futile. 
least- don't know what that says. It's like killing the host, right? That's just, it's just an odd tweak on the ideology here. Maybe aligned with, you know, we didn't see that in previous films. And in this film, if we have some sort of human origin of the demon, maybe that is just kind of aligned with like human spirits not being able to come back. I know I bring this up often with regard to the Dr. Sleep, but that's when it really solidified for me. This idea that often in horror films, we tell ourselves stories to convince ourselves that we can't do the things that we wish we could do, like be able to come back from the dead or, you know, relive our childhood or, or whatever. So that could just be some little fragmentary component of that. I don't know, but I thought that was an interesting tweak. We haven't seen that in these films before. Well, Elise mentions, I'm sure Elise mentions in the first insidious as well as this one, she calls the possessing thing a parasite. Specifically, she says, this is a parasite. It wants to use your kid as a host. So, Which again, could, could be cool if we've got human origin of evil. And then we've got the parasitic nature of this yeah. demon generated by abuse. Like there could be some potential there. Yeah, could be. Well, they got three more movies to take advantage of that potential. Oh God, we don't have to watch them, do we? <laughs> no, I was thinking, depending now that we're on break, depending, I may put, I may put one of those on, but I wouldn't, I don't think we need to commit anymore. I mean, if I see, if I watch one of them and I'm like, oh, well, this could may, continues to be really interesting, I will certainly let you know. But no, I think we have a list of ad- other films that would be more interesting to consider before we devote yet more weeks to these franchises. Okay, I have one other thing then. Huh? There was a line in the film. Who says it? Does Josh, possessed Josh, maybe say it to Renee. Someone says it to Renee. You shouldn't have been afraid of ghosts or if you had spent, you shouldn't have spent your, you know, your brief little happy time in this life being so afraid of ghosts. Like it was a waste, right? Of her little glimmer on earth. You have no idea how much you have wasted your life being afraid of the dead because pretty soon you're going to be one of them. Then when I take you to my home, in the dark you'll realize how happy you should have been for your brief little moment in the sun like it was a waste right of her little glimmer on earth and i thought in line with like the conversations we've had about the previous films i like that as like a meta commentary on this type of film because we made the argument oh, last time right? that these this is a family who's got plenty of privilege there's nothing really to be terribly afraid of they've got this massively huge house they've got they're comfortable and fine but the film starts off with them creeping around in the attic and there's scary things up there and you know just promoting this this ideology that you should be afraid and there's fear or maybe even I won't even just say promoting it I'll say reflecting it right reflecting fear that people even in very privileged situations have and that sort of meta just token of advice coming from demon Josh or whatever, that was kind of out of place in the context of the film, but about this genre of film, I thought was pretty cool. Hey, maybe you shouldn't spend your, your brief little glimmer of you live in a super nice neighborhood and have lots of access to resources and nothing's really wrong in your life. And like, you don't even know what it's like to suffer. So you're making up these fake stories about ghosts, you know, sneaking around in your house. Like maybe you should just be happy. (laughs) I like that. That is, I didn't think of that as meta, but yes, it's, your point is very well made. Here we are spending an inordinate amount of time wasting our lives 
I guess we're not being really being afraid of the dead, but we're intellectualizing other people's fears of the dead, which may be worse. Or oh, you're, you're critiquing us? <laughs> oh, I thought that's what you were saying by the meta. No, well, yeah, not not us. No, we're totally fine. We totally <laughs> escape critique in this in this argument. But but I think critiquing the audience for these types of films, right? If these films are directed at reflecting or stoking or some combination of the two, fear in privileged families that don't have anything to really be afraid of. I see. And you know, redirecting away from real life fears that other people might be experiencing to like the boogeyman in the attic, mm. then. I just thought that was a, a nice commentary to the audience of the films. What I we're see. doing is totally justified. <laughs> <laughs> I see. I I see. I right. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, that's interesting too. I mean it was I will say this. It it definitely felt like I don't know if I have more to say about that. I think and I don't think I need to. I think you said what needs to be said. It was just odd that they clearly set up to have a sequel. I mean, the end of the first film is, that's what it is. It's a lead into to a sequel very overtly. Not even just, is it dead or isn't it? Blah, 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 dun, dun, dun. It was, but this was so convoluted. It, it really felt like they, really felt like something where they didn't expect to have a sequel and they had to, you know, jimmy a bunch of stuff and manipulate and kind of get things to work and throw some things in there that, wouldn't have been otherwise it it felt like that even though even though they clearly set up to allow for the sequels so yeah maybe it's because he was focusing so much on the conjuring this got rushed or i don't know whatever it was worth watching i'm glad we watched it i'm glad we got to talk about the gender i'm sure that's what i was thinking when i watched this however many years ago and i noticed and that's why I wanted to talk about it. And it didn't pan out into a nice, straightforward. This was just terrible, horrible gender dysmorphia, othering and demonization, stigmatization. But I'm so glad we got to discuss it and, and sort through it. Me too. And, and I want to give just another nod to McDonaldization because that's what I led with here. So George Ritzer's McDonaldization, one of the components of McDonaldization is predictability. And predictability has to do with when you enter these McDonaldized consumer establishments, you don't have to, you know exactly what you're going to get. You don't have to think, you don't have to be open to new possibilities, you know, that there's a sense of comfort in that. And I often, when I would teach this in class, I would tell my students how when I was doing the whole like college backpacking around Europe thing, I remember once going to McDonald's and I don't remember what country it was in, but I just remember being relieved and relaxed to walk in the door of a McDonald's and feel like I know what's going to happen here. (laughs) There was a comfort in that. And there was just a comfort in the familiarity and the predictability. And it's one thing to want to have new and novel and interesting experiences, but when you're being bombarded with those on a daily basis, sometimes it's really relaxing, especially if you're stressed out to just get what you know, <laughs> you know, you know exactly what it's going to be like. And there's some appeal in that. And so anyway, I know in, in the original version of McDonaldization of society, Ritzer talks about sequels and talks about, you know, film franchises falling into this, this characteristic of predictability. And so you don't have to think, you don't have to be challenged. You don't have to go any place hard or, you know, if you're living a life that you're 
like I said, feeling stressed out and feeling like you don't have the bandwidth to handle thinking, um, then that can be very appealing. And I just couldn't help but be overwhelmed with that at the end of this film. I mean, it was just, it was so, aside from the fact that the film didn't even really come together or make a cohesive argument, it just, it just, I don't know, it just ended on such a like, okay, and now here's your next installment. Here's, we're going to lead into that. So you'll just come back for the next one and you will get exactly as you know, you'll get, you won't get challenged just like you didn't get challenged here. It doesn't even really matter if it makes sense. We're not even going to like bother to tie our ideological threads together. Cause we know you're not paying attention. <laughs> we know you don't really care. He's the origin. And was it his mom? Was it a demon? Was it a demon mom? Was he his mom? Nobody gives a shit. You know, <laughs> it just, it just felt so much like that. And like, oh, let's just wander ghost Elise into another house and then we're going to start all over again and you'll come back and you'll buy it, won't you? Because you don't want to be challenged. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was great. That was, that's very well said. And apparently it works or works because we're coming up on installment number five. Right. And they're all making money, right? I just looked. Insidious Chapter 3, budget 10 million, 50 gross in the US, and 112 worldwide. So not 14 times return, but 11. It's pretty good. It's, I mean, yeah. yeah. So as long as we're talking about McDonaldization. Um, <laughs> Ritzer talks about disenchantment. Right, which is this idea that it's like the, one of the negative components of McDonaldization. And I always struggle to explain that other than to say that, you know, sometimes when everything, when your day is not totally predictable and not totally planned down to the minute and you have to think through things and make mistakes and get into novel situations and run into things that are inefficient, often those are the experiences that really feed into your lives well and like make you feel like you have meaning. And, you know, I try to give some examples. I actually think in, in one of my classes when I taught this recently, I gave the example of the old washing machine that I acquired and the not very direct route by which I came to own this hundred year old washing <laughs> machine. And it involves quite a few tangents and, you know, weird road trips with my son to, we ended up at some random restaurant and farmland somewhere where they served Rocky mountain oysters, which I thought it would be a great idea to try with him. And, you know, just, you just run into things that we, on the same way back from that trip, we passed some strange, like a, it's like a park with a bunch of weird metal artwork installations and stuff and stopped there. And anyway, just that when you don't really, when you're not doing something efficiently, you know, I didn't just push a button on the computer and get that washing machine because I couldn't. There's not a mechanism for that established in society. And so I had to kind of find a way to do it, which meant making phone calls to people I didn't know and talking to them and learning about them. And then, you know, it 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 fed into a series of actually really kind of wonderful days. But that is when he talks about disenchantment, I think he talks about the loss of that, like the loss of I think he he describes it or defines it as some sort of like mystical quality or something that life can have, right? It's a bit amorphous, but that's how I take it anyway, to be the the good that comes out of wandering and not necessarily getting things done in the most efficient way possible. And I guess I would just, I would throw that back on this film as well, that when you have predictability in a franchise like this, I guess you can go and you can just sort of mind numbingly be exposed to the same stuff and get the same, I don't know, I guess sort of high from the chase scene or whatever you get, but that you're really missing something. Yes. And I was to that end, I didn't hardly remember anything about the film other than 
I had, you know, this notion that somewhere in the in the gender representation, it was really problematic because it's not. Oh, and I'm not critiquing your. I think I'm glad we did it. I'm oh no, I'm saying it. that it, it's not. It didn't press anything else. It didn't. It wasn't innovative. I mean, I remember the Conjuring. You know, I noted that, and I thought it was interesting. So there, there is that there, but it's also the new franchise. Well, then they took and ran with that, but, but of all the films, you know, it, it just didn't, it hasn't stood out. It hasn't, particularly the sequels. It's like, oh yeah, the first one's pretty good, but, but, but. So that very much speaks to your, at least for some of us, we want to see those boundaries keep being pushed or we want something to happen. And I mean, I'll watch these just like I'll watch the Saw films, but that absolutely there's a comfort and a though and those films are very much that comfort rather than continuing to it becomes process which is which is yeah there's a whole another piece there well so at some point we can well if we do watch saw we can we can talk process and predictability and 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 there was something there's something to one of the early uh slasher film theorists talks about that's very pretty very quickly it really became about the process we all know the formula and that was some of the so and which you've said i think in particular laura is there's this real divide between these early films that were last house on the left text chance of massacre that were so that were so innovative and so stood out as such massive shifts in the culture and and points and then it all does become process and, and basically turns to mush. But that popularity during that time of, of the mush is there's something very interesting societally there too. So, so we're back to something about that avant avant-garde. I don't know if that I'm using that exactly right, but that however that plays out within our culture, there, there is enough interest in like, let we want something new. We want something innovative this is really what is interesting and and we're going to make these things that are totally different really people are going to talk about it and tell each other and and study it and then there's the the mcdonaldized version of it that comes after it that uses up that that uh innovation that idea and then it's what do you do with it or where, where to next and that's that's really kind of that's really an interesting concept too is how far how far out there can innovation be before it gets totally lost? How far is too far? Because it, it has to be, or I don't know if it has to be, but the innovation needs to be different enough and far enough that it seems new and exciting and and different, which is, I understand, I just defined innovation, but still. Um, and then And then the flip side of that is, but if you go to... If you get too weird with it, people people won't. You'll lose. You you. It's like every step out into the further, if you will. I'm not going to use that metaphor. Every step further out into the weirdness is some percentage of the population that you're going to lose. And so, finding that line is is interesting to think about as well. I almost wonder if we can tie this back to false consciousness again, and say that just the the act of thinking and questioning society and 
being really thoughtful about things in the category of good and evil can be troubling, maybe it could be upsetting to society, right? It could be unsettling to the current status, like power structure in society, because, well, because by nature of that, if you're questioning what's right and what's wrong, that could be unsettling. <laughs> you could decide things are wrong and they need to change. And so the popularity of these types of formulaic films that don't really push boundaries and don't really challenge things could almost fall into the, the Marxist false consciousness category, right? This idea that, I mean, I don't know, false consciousness, I guess, has to do with what you think is important. Maybe this is more back to like religion as the opiate of the masses, but just pay attention to this narrative, repeat the same narrative over and over and over and the struggle of what's going to happen or what, you know, like just play it out in a way where nothing is going to challenge you and nothing is going to make you really question anything about the current societal structure. There might be something there. It would benefit those in power. And it also makes money, which also benefits those in power. So I suppose it's like a win-win, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't have the brain for that right now. I'm sorry to say, but I, it will, I'll let it, I'll churn on that in the, in the background. Hopefully we can come back to it in future discussions. But great it. Towards the end of every episode, Laura and I, we are both instructors. We both teach sociology. And so we evaluate the films based on what we think they contribute to the social and cultural milieu, discourse, overall sense of contribution in terms of good and evil and human values and all of that sort of thing. There's some consideration of entertainment value and execution, but we are more concerned with the messages and subtexts and representations that exist within the film. And so that's how we evaluate them. And we, we give the film a great. I don't want to go out of D again, but I think I'm probably going to sit in D just like I did with the last one, because it wasn't, it wasn't a resounding F the way that the conjuring was. I say this one got slightly better in terms of unintentional ideology, as I've argued, but then was worse in the sense that it, it really did present some othering, xenophobic arguments that were not necessary at all so that was bad <laughs> i completely agree and yeah the those steps forward were offset by the lack of productive exploration of those or utilization of those steps so whatever would have bumped it up on that side i would have taken away points on the other side so i'd still end up with you know flat d yeah and gosh, the mom in this film bothered me so much more than she did last time. Maybe just because she was back and she's still, all she does is look like she's getting ready to get kicked. You know, she just, she looks like a, like a animal cowering in the corner. I just, I couldn't stand it. The look on her face through the entire film, there's no agency. There's no development of her character. All we know is she wrote a song once. That's still the only thing we learned about her. I just, I, oh, I could not stand watching it. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. I think it was absolutely worth noting because- she was entirely wasted and she's a, I mean, she's, I'm, I'm looking now. Okay. Well, maybe she hasn't been in the most lofty dramatic films, but she's been in some comedies. Uh, she's been in a bunch of films. I, I just, how about the, I, she's an actress who I think could have done a whole lot more if they would have given her anything to work with. But she absolutely, like you said, even compared to the first one, she was just totally, she was a 
she, she might as well have been a lamp <laughs> with a, like you say, a pouty face or a, I'm so worried face. It, yeah. Just totally wasted her as an actress. We appreciate you listening. We appreciate you sticking with us all the way to the end. Horror films are our collective nightmares. Welcome. This is the Collective Nightmares Podcast. My name is Marshall Smith. Nope. Welcome. This is the Collective Nightmares Podcast. We are sociologists who talk horror films. I'm Marshall Smith. I love digging into horror because uh, I, I just don't want to do that intro this time. I so don't have anything for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should just redo the one you did for Insidious because it's just a bland remake. And so <laughs> there's no need to be innovative here, Marshall. Uh... Sequel, not remake. Yeah. <sighs> Hold on, it's coming. <laughs> well, it's similar to the Lamberts, in our discussion of Insidious, we felt like we defeated the film. And its meanings. However, this one, we found that the meaning and the ideology of the film could not be addressed so easily it was painful painful and tortured <laughs> much much like this film is <laughs> watch the film before you listen if in order to get the impact of the film we encourage you to do that so we don't spoil the full impact of the film for you that came out really convoluted uh, i don't know let's look Carl? Carl? Carl. Carl? I was hoping you were going to use the word insidii. Uh, uh, is that a thing? You know, I'm a little bit disappointed that we had such a grand overarching... I feel like we started with a grand overarching theory of these films at the beginning and the more we dig in, the more we're having to refine all of that, which I suppose is, is part of the process. <laughs> but uh, it almost makes me feel like we just need to see more. And I guess at some point we'll need to shift away from this segment of our podcast, but I'm still really curious. Like I still want to answer all these questions that we're raising. Where do these films come from and why and in what order? And what does it mean when they present these ideologies and how much is that reflecting back our fears? And I suppose the, the reality is probably that because like there is no one 
ideology floating around in society at any given time, right? There's not one film that's going to reflect that perfectly. And so you can have films that come out the exact same year and just present different parts of the cultural soup that we're swimming in. And so maybe a grand overarching theme is not really the, the way we're going to solve this puzzle, but I feel like we're in the weeds right now. And I, I have this desire to put everything in a nice, neat little box and just doesn't feel that way. Yeah, but the, uh, yeah, I mean, sure, that'd be nice, but it's limited data points. It's super oversampled one creative team, which right. is, which we did intentionally to start with. But, and then one's a sequel and one's not. It's all, I mean, I think we got to, yeah, I think we're ready to move on to whatever we're going to move on to. I still want to do more of these. So are we still going to do uh, something old? Poltergeist? We can. You, I guess it's up to you. What did we talk about? Because we were going to do Saw also. Were we going to go to Saw next? I don't know. Are we going to just wand it up? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I could get those produced and it could be Wanuary. <laughs> <laughs> I do like that. I I remember feeling like I learned something in Saw. I'm sorry, I'm not done laughing at my own joke yet. <laughs> saw, saw changed the core game. For better or for worse, I don't hardly remember it. I'm sure I'm sure I've seen it no more than twice. I may have only ever seen it once. No, I because I watched it with I watched him with Chris. I've seen it twice. That's all. I don't know. I don't know anything else. Maybe we should do Saw next. Yeah, it's fine. Do you have a preference between Saw and Poltergeist? Uh, uh, I would rather take a break from one for at least a week. Okay. All right, let's do Poltergeist. Okay. It's one of my students watched... Text Chainsaw Massacre for their final paper and wasn't impressed. For their final, they talked a little bit about what they found, and I was like, I have to remember that you've been thinking about movies this way for maybe like eight weeks. Because really, right now, <laughs> I just want to tell you how wrong you are. <laughs> For not for not realizing that Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a, a profoundly impressive film, still almost fifty years later. And I had another two other students. I worked on Get Out, and they uh, they missed the fact that the the help at the house were the uh, reincarnation or the transfer of consciousness of the white grandparents. Mm. They thought that they were, had just been sort of possessed or spiritually enslaved or something. And so I said something to that effect and 
I don't I don't know. Whatever. They they've been kind of snotty for a little while in the semester. But the one woman was like, "Well, you know, after we turned in our paper, we did we did look at it because I told them if you're going to do that, I really would prefer you not read everything what everything everybody else has written. Just take it on your own." She's like, "Well, we went go went and got online, and everybody said it was slavery, and we talked about it was slavery, and the bingo thing is a slave auction, so it really was about slavery." And I was asking him, well, what do you mean by slavery because of the, the grandparent thing? And she, she sort of, she's, again, she sort of startled. She was like, have you even seen the film? And I was like, it took me everything I have, Laura, to just, and I did get a little bit I where I was like, I just want to tear you apart right now. <laughs> Don't ask me that in that tone. Don't say that to me. This is a film that I could talk about for an entire semester. You're going to give me some shit about that? I just wanted to, oh God, Laura, I just, oh my God. And my only other, in the different class, in intro, I had a student, I had a student who uh, sent me an email and I didn't get get a reply to it. And she sent me, it was a couple of days. She, she was, you know, frustrated or whatever. She sent me an, as per my last email, email. <laughs> and, Wait, she sent you a what? And as per my last email is how she started her email. <laughs> and I sent her back and I was like, did you really just ask for my last email me? <laughs> and she, and, and I, and I said like, ha ha or whatever. Um, and I answered her question. I mean, I have good rapport with her, so I, I sort of teased her about it at the final, but I sent that back to her and she sent me back immediately this like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean, I didn't know what that meant. I looked it up and I was like, that, that's pretty funny. <laughs> it's funny though, because for her, for that student, I was like, that's fair. You needed an answer. It was finals. I did. It was like three days. I didn't reply. I don't know where it slipped through the cracks. And I thought it was kind of funny, but the other student, I was just like, you picked the wrong movie to question me about. So those are my final stories. I don't know why I'm where I even started telling you those, but now I got to grade shit. Have you graded stuff? No, you just gave. I thought finals were done yesterday. Mm-hmm. You gave a final. No, uh-uh. That was your grad yeah. student? That was your grad? Grad class? No, huh? That class hasn't started. No, I had my finals were like the scheduled times were Friday and Sunday. Um, and so I made like it available. Two days ago season. and today. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. God. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't that seem like a long time in between? Since... Yes. And a bizarrely long time after classes ended. Yeah. I, I that's feel like what something I mean. weird happened at the end of the semester and I don't really know what it was. Because I, I think I told you I had my class scheduled for an extra week. And then I all of a sudden realized that my schedule was wrong and I, I don't, I've never done that before. So I think something got goofy, like the length wasn't the same as it previously has been or something. So I had to like cut off the last week of my class. And then we had like 10 days between the last day of class and the final, which also felt super bizarre. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, uh... yeah, I have, now I have all the people who waited till the last minute to try to do the final and then have strange problems emailing me like I have one student who emailed and she's like I'm totally flipping out because I thought the final was due tonight but now I looked on canvas and it said it was due today whatever that means and um, it is due tonight so I don't even know what she's talking about but she like sent this all stressed out email that I guess I'll have to respond to Um, and another student who 
just wanted to tell me that she thought all of the questions were horribly unfair and didn't relate to the material they've covered at all and blah, 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 which isn't right. <laughs> I don't feel like responding. And then the other like sort of random emails of like, I really want to be and I didn't do well on the final and is there anything else I can do? And so I was frustrated before our podcast, just looking at all those lists of things mm -hmm. and like, oh, now all, this is where all the problems emerge, you know, in the last like three hours before the finals due tonight. Which, and that's still not cool from those students. I will just say though, that you're an impossible and they're in an impossible or very difficult position. We're in impossible situations because how do you how do you evaluate that and and everybody's stressed out and this the university really just screwed everyone because but I so when when I was planning the semester I basically after fall break it was all I just filled in schedule like workshop final project work. Cause I basically figured that we were not going to get anything done in terms of new content. Yeah. And I'm glad I did that at the same time. I have to say, I have felt like the semester has basically been over since fall break. Yeah. yeah. And, and to, to have students, I mean, I had students turn, do a, do their final turn it in yesterday. And then I, I meet on zoom and have them talk about it. And it was like, I was like, how, how, how did we expect 18, 19, 20 year old students to remain engaged and focused on this material? Yeah, I was like, I, I, I just was, I was just baffled. I, I was like, I haven't seen you all in, I don't even know how long it feels like mm -hmm. a long time. Yeah, that's, that's very true. That's very true. I, I, and especially then with finals coming yeah, a week and a half or whatever after the last day of class. It's it's just like that doesn't excuse anything. Um, I also I had a student who was like, "Well, I sent you a bunch of emails over the semester, and I'm just wondering if I can still get a D." Excuse me, I was explaining, or I explained why I couldn't be in class, and she sent me like an email a month ago that was like she sent an email two months ago that was like my literally like my roommate's dog died, and I have to do something for them and then a month ago it was like some other bizarre not bizarre but like tangential kind of excuse like my dad isn't feeling well or something it wasn't covid it was just something and i was like i i said her back i was like i didn't even know you were in the class anymore <laughs> i haven't seen you on zoom since mid-october <laughs> no sorry i can't give you a, a passing grade but i said that all as diplomatically yeah. as i could but but i it upsets me because i feel like i mean she didn't but i do think there's certainly students who will absolutely take advantage of covid mm -hmm. but three hours like i i for me, don't you just want to like email that person back and be like, you had 10 days to ask this. Right. I'm no longer responding to yeah. this shit. Yeah. And I just, I think I'll deal with all of it tomorrow, which will make some of those emails. It's like two days that they're waiting to get a response, but also like 
the semester's over for me too. It's been over, like you said, for two weeks. <laughs> yeah, you had ten days to at least for me. I, you know, they yeah. wrote, they wrote papers, and thankfully, honestly, I didn't have, I didn't have anyone. No, that's not true. I did have. I had a student asked me for an incomplete, but I also had a student who had to. She she moved out of her house, like fled her house because mm. somebody in her home was abusing her, mm. and she was like can I have like a day in extension? And I was like, yes, <laughs> right. <laughs> totally. Uh, that's totally fine. But yeah, I actually was very fortunate that I didn't get the, what you're dealing with. Yeah. After 10 days. Maybe because my class is so big. So, Oh yeah, totally. 75 students. You're bound to have a few who are, yeah. gonna, you know, first hey, year. next weekend, because it's break. Finally. Um, would you want to do a little longer, watch the movie together and hang out a little more again? You could watch something. Oh, that would be the whole yeah. next week. I have Noah. Um, Ooh, and I said that, and I'd totally be down to do that with Poltergeist because I've seen it, you know, cool 20, 30 times. Cool. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, awesome. Sunday? Cool. Good, okay. good, good. Yeah, that sounds fun. good. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Okay. All right. All right. Get to bed. I'm going to go to bed. It's 8.40. Yeah. <laughs> All, right. All right. I'll talk to you soon, Laura. Okay. Be this was fun. As it All always right. is. Good luck, Graydon. Yeah. Thanks. You too. All right. Bye. Bye. Well, the first, the, this ties in. It does, I swear. What was the first thing we were talking about that we couldn't solve? Is it, is Parker the demon or is the witch possessing Parker? That question? Oh, I swear. Just give me a second. Cause I swear sure. this thread's going to come sure. through. It will. <laughs> sure, of course. Take your time. I hope. Oh no, I had it. I feel like I had the keys to the to, to circle around our entire conversation here. Okay, I don't know. It'll come back, I guess. Sorry. You can just cut that little part out. Evil being human or or mystical inside the house or outside. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry. Bummer. <laughs> I was, I was oh, no. very curious to hear what you what you had to say. Can you hear that? People found a golf ball. <laughs> oh, oh. It's really noisy on this end. I didn't want you to hear a, what sounds like a bowling ball rolling across the hardwood floor.